You're listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. Back for another week. My name is Matt Walsh. Uh, I'm in the host's chair uh, this afternoon. And joining me, as always, Jake Michaels. Uh, Whereabouts are you at the moment? Are you in uh, Kingsbury, Jake? Close enough. I, I like how you always say you're in the host chair. Well, you're you're the only one ever in the host chair, aren't you? <laughs> I, I think Neil had a go last year a couple of uh, couple of times and, and did a very good job. But just thought I'd uh, let everyone know who is the boss of good standing. What? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. No, I am. I'm uh, I'm at home uh, recording another one. And uh, what a week! What a week of upsets. It, it certainly was. Uh, Christian Jolly from Champion Data, you've joined us once again. Uh, a few. Interesting results. Your Blues got up just by the skin of their teeth after nearly blowing a seven-goal lead. Uh, how was your weekend of, of watching footy? Yeah, it was an interesting weekend. So, um, yeah, a few results. We actually had uh, interesting times in my family. My wife had to get tested for COVID on Thursday. So oh. I actually uh, got banned from the office this weekend. Uh, she got on it. on the couch at home in isolation. I'm fine. And she uh, test uh, came back all negative. So all good. But, um, yeah, had the weekend off and got to sit on the couch and watch some games. And, yeah. Exciting weekend of footy. Oh, you got to make the best of a bad situation. Rowan Connolly, were you watching from the couch as well? You haven't contracted COVID, have you? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I've been living in this same room for <laughs> six months, seriously. I, I, I'm pretty well set up here, but I'm looking at getting in the fridge and the bed, and that way I, I literally won't have to leave this room. I am go, starting to go stir-crazy, I've got to admit it. But uh, some very interesting footy across the weekend. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, well, I mean, the AFL really can't seem to escape drama, either good or bad at the moment. The Bombers situation obviously evolved really quickly, and we'll kind of touch on uh, what happens from here uh, with the latest on them shortly. Uh, the Gold Coast Suns also sort of continue their rapid rise uh, after another weekend result that went their way. But, you know, is it a false dawn? Pardon the Suns puns. Uh, and was Clarko right all along? I mean, the Cats were picked apart at their own fortress by a team that many thought isn't really going to be a contender in 2020. So... Um, There's obviously plenty to talk about and plenty to break down. But before we get started, guys, I want to go around the room. Rowan, I might start with you. What is something we might not get to sort of deep dive into that caught your eye from the weekend? Uh, Look, I'd have to say uh, the Sydney Swans. And it's um, sort of par for the course that they go under the radar. But I think given the fairly dire predictions about how they were going to go and that they're absolutely in a, a transitional sort of slash rebuilding phase. But have a look at their results. They won their first game, albeit against Adelaide, which doesn't look like a huge win now, but they still won away from home. Uh, they pushed Essendon to within a goal and could easily have won that game. And now they've upset North, who a lot of people were, were seeing as the, the form side of the competition. They're, I think some of their younger guys are really starting to have an impact. Um, I think their senior players are really standing up. And not for the first time. I, I think they've been absolutely admirable um, probably not garnering much attention, but um, you know, they're, they're, for where they were supposed to be in 2020, I think they're sitting pretty right now. I think they've done a great job. You think we would have learned by now not to write off the Swans in, in terms of uh, after a... after t- after 20 <laughs> odd years, yeah. But some of us some of us just never learned that lesson, unfortunately. Uh, I'm in that boat as well. Uh, Jake, anything uh, interesting from the weekend that you you thought you want to mention? Well, the thing that caught my eye was the fact that Collingwood is now the premiership favourite. So um, a few people might not be uh, aware of that. But, yeah, they are the bookies' favourite. Uh, big win for them. Obviously, Richmond lost. So those two have swapped places. And 
uh, it is interesting because we saw last year how Richmond wasn't too popular halfway through the year and they stormed home. So I wouldn't be writing Richmond off by any stretch, but just something to keep an eye on. Collingwood now the team to beat as far as the bookies are concerned. It was probably a good time for them to run into the Saints, who many sort of thought would be in the, the group of teams pushing up into the eight this year and, and would have provided a good test uh, to the Pies, but they, they passed that test with flying colours, you'd think. Absolutely. Christian, anything from the weekend that uh, we might have missed? Well, no, one of, the, one of the teams that caught my eye, I'll stick to the team team, is uh, Port Adelaide. Um, they're looking dominant at the moment. I mean, again, they're three opposition opponents in the first three weeks. They've had Gold Coast, Adelaide and Frio. So no finalists or anything in there from last year. But they are on top of nearly every key indicator, contested possessions, clearances, uncontested possessions, disposal differential. They are dom- they've dominated their three games. And, uh, yeah, watching them on uh, Sunday night, they, they did it again and they, they look good. Just quietly, I really did not like that Sunday night fixture, but I guess it, was, got a, it was Sunday night, not Monday. Yeah, it was, yes. Oh, can I can I just say that there, there was a point in that game where I thought Frio v Port, Gold Coast. Uh, it was about ten thirty p.m. It was pissing down with rain, no crowd. I thought, yeah, footy doesn't get any better than this, does it? <laughs> Rather sarcastically. Uh, it was it was a bizarre set of circumstances. I was I was sort of on on desk uh, watching that game, and I just thought this is not what I'm normally doing at ten thirty on a, on a Sunday <laughs> evening. But nevertheless, uh, something that caught my. Well, it's up. funny how it's funny how spoilt we are because three weeks ago we would have killed for that, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. You kind of I don't know that I would have actually. I'm not True. sure I would have. <laughs> <laughs> um, something that caught my eye um, that you might have missed as well is uh, umpires wearing white in the Brisbane West Coast game. I thought that was. Uh, a little throwback to, to the early 2000s and late 90s. And I know that West Coast's um, yellow jumper that they were wearing obviously would have been uh, too much of a clash. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, more of the umps in white going forward if, if uh, clash jumpers permit. I reckon take it further, Matt. I reckon we've got to go the full hog, get the goal umpires in the white coats with the pork pie hats again. I like it. Yes, I think um, we haven't had a, a, a heritage round for a long time. I think it's time for the AFL to about bringing something like that back complete with umps with uh, handlebar moustaches as well <laughs> um, all right let's get into the real stuff though we've uh, talked enough about the the lighter side of footy but um, I mean Essendon fans players and administrators can sort of let out a bit of a sigh of relief it would seem Rowan um, with just one player said to join Connor McKenna on the sidelines uh, in quarantine because of his COVID test James Stewart was is the man deemed to be in close contact with McKenna um, it's been revealed that they're going to go ahead with the game this Saturday night against Carlton. Is this the right result for footy? Oh, absolutely. I, I think given some of the dire predictions that were being made, you know, in the 48, 72 hours since the news came out about McKenna, absolutely. It's, you know, I'm quite, I must admit, I saw the news this morning and I thought, wow, you know, that's better than they could have hoped for, really. Um, but it's a, a lesson to me, I think, that with this situation you just you can't presume anything and all the speculation about what would happen it, it's pretty pointless really because we we just don't know only the health authorities well even they don't know to a point um so yeah it's a it's a great result for footy i mean we've already had one game postponed now it would it just would have been terrible had the game gone on and you had not for carlton supporters i, I grant <laughs> you that but you know, no, I don't think anyone wants to see, you know, half-strength sides playing games of footy because in a way that compromises the integrity of the whole season, not just damages the fortunes of one club. So 
we've just got to really, you know, cross our fingers that we don't get too many more COVID positive results because um, the ramifications, particularly as the weeks go on and more sides have played more sides, uh, the ramifications of a positive test are enormous. Well, Jake, I think um, maybe something... Go on, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, I was just say credit to the AFL for exactly the way they handled it. I mean, I think that the test result came through Saturday morning. They postponed the game by... The announcement was made 4.30 Saturday afternoon. So, swift movement, um, you know, hard and fast decisions. And they, you know, ended up getting a game back on Channel 7, free to air. They moved the game around and everything worked sort of smoothly. Um, you know, hopefully they play that game back. But, yeah, I think credit to the AFL just for being able to minimise the risk and sort of keeping the competition running. Rowan, you sort of said about the fixture um, and how if the longer the season goes and if there's a positive result, teams that have to play each other, you know, we might not get a season where teams end up playing each other once. I mean, we almost had that situation this week because Carlton and Melbourne played last week. Melbourne was supposed to play Geelong this week, who Carlton played this week, and Essendon was supposed to play Carlton. It was a really big sort of mixed jumble there where if the AFL could have got away sort of games midweek, you think, or or midweek next week, but because of the way that the teams had panned out playing one another in weeks prior, I feel like I'm sort of going around in circles here, but you kind of get my drift that, that it's going to be tough for the AFL to fixture these games uh, should stuff go wrong in, in the future. And, and you're right, Christian, they've done a really good job uh, trying to sort of mitigate the, uh, the damage so far. And, and I think we'll, we'll still get a, a full season uh, without interruption um, going forward because of this. Well, how, I, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top here, but if everyone can't play everyone else, how are we actually going to have a ladder? Um, you know, is it is it going to be, do we go back to the old, remember, you guys are probably all too young, but the old match ratio system when the Crows first came in and you had sides playing uneven amounts of games at the end of a round. Um, are they going to have to do something like that? I mean, again, comes back to what I said, uh, you know, I hate to use the word, everyone's using it, but unprecedented. And when the AFL talk about flexibility, they just, there are so many bases that, logistical bases which need to be covered that we probably won't even think about until all of a sudden those circumstances present themselves. And quite right, Christian, I think so far in terms of covering off on that, the AFL's done a fantastic job. The AFL, to me, seems very reluctant to pencil in midweek games before it is absolutely necessary. I think there, w- there would have been an option this week. They could have said to Melbourne, look, hold off on your intra-club. There's a chance we could play this midweek and, and, and sort of get away with it there. And you know what? These are two teams that could probably handle it because the Bombers play things like Anzac Day midweek all the time and then have to back it up four days later. Um, the Ds have had to play Anzac Day Eve in the last few years to sort of understand that sort of flexible um, fixture routine that, that the AFL sort of puts on them. Um, I just think that until the AFL absolutely has to, it seems that they're not going to be pushing midweek games uh, at the moment. And that's how it should be. There's no need for them to, to start scheduling things in. But to the point about the Bombers... Ha- I believe that had they had to reschedule this week, this upcoming game against Carlton, I just think it would have started to snowball out of control and they would have had to get to a point where, one, as as Rowan said at the top, the integrity starts to get compromised. And two, you get to this point where you can't... I know that they're going to push the season back, but if this continues to get out of hand, you just can't play all these games. You can't get to a point where you're trying to play a team playing three times in in eight days or something like that. So it's a big win for the AFL that they can go ahead with this game and and the Bombers will play and they'll work out a, work out when they can reschedule the other one. But 
uh, yeah, it starts to get to a point. I just find it's funny that the, the AFL sort of gone back on what they initially said, uh, play was to contract the virus. Yes. Uh, and I know we didn't play, mm-hmm. but um, that's why you, you can't forecast what's going to happen um, exactly because you don't know the circumstances. And look, we're all pretty comfortable now with the way that the AFL's handled and the way it's panned out, but it does go against what, what Gil said a couple of months ago. Yeah, well, I was just going to say a couple of months ago being the key phrase there. I mean, it, it's so dynamic, it keeps changing. Clearly, over the last couple of months, I think the protocols and and even the knowledge about how best to contain it by the medical people has, the uh, bank of knowledge has been improved to the point where we are now in a position to do more than we were had one person tested positive. The other thing I wanted to say just quickly too was a bit of a mea culpa from me but hopefully a lot of other people too, because I've been very big on that we, we should go back to normal length quarters. Well, we saw a classic example of why, unfortunately, we can't afford to, because we may well need to play three games in eight days. So, um, you know, they've, they've held the line on that and um, probably just as well they did. Um, question for, for all of you. I mean, the way that the Bombers went about their training groups, um, obviously they can't have too many players in each group of training and, and the Bombers put together effectively what was just about their starting back line. Uh, and if things had gone a little bit worse, if, if McKenna um, had perhaps uh, been in contact with someone and then transferred his positive result to someone else, geez, that could have been, could have been disastrous for the Bombers. Are we going to see clubs start to modify this and put, um, you know, not their first line defence or their first line attack together in these training groups to sort of uh, avoid stuff like this in the future? Well, you know what you do. You, you'll pick out your four or five best players and make sure they're training with the youngest, least experienced guys in the group. I don't know, you can only manufacture that to a point, can't you? Although I did see some clubs apparently were mixing up the groups in light of that eventuality. Maybe yes, and it sort of didn't occur to them. I mean, again, another example of the sort of uh, insane level of logistical planning that has to go into just day-to-day operations of a, an AFL club training. I mean, it's a, it's far more than just washing your hands a lot, isn't it? <laughs> really? Well, I mean, how bad could it be for, for someone, you know, a first-year player or a second-year player on a list to, to sort of get some training experience with those first-line players? I mean, look, there are, there are worse things to have to come out of this sort of COVID situation, and, and I could think of a few worse than that for sure. Um, the yeah, problem is the, the midfield group needs to train together and the, the defence needs to train together. So you, you you can't just split everyone up. You can't just say, all right, you're a defender, you're a midfielder, you're a forward. But do they, though? Go and train together. Well, they do. If they're going to be practising their structures and all that sort of stuff, of course they need to train but together. But if it puts them at risk so, of, of shutting down an entire back line going into a round six game, if someone gets in contact with someone with COVID, like where, how do you sort of mitigate the risk and, and still you know, give yourself the best chance to win a flag? Well, that's what—that's the balancing act you've got to find, I guess. But the other thing is, you know, going back to the point where the, the, the whole the whole situation is just rapidly changing. Seven days ago, the likelihood of a, of a play, an AFL player contracting the virus was pretty slim. And all of a sudden, we've got one. And all of a sudden, we've seen the, uh, the, the mini spike in cases in Victoria. And now there's a bit more panic again. So we don't know what's going to happen in in a month's time. The problem is we're all trying to predict what's going to happen. And this goes back to the whole point with the AFL saying, you know, we're going to shut down for a month if, if someone contracts it. There's no point predicting what's going to happen in the future because we don't know. We have to just roll with the punches and adjust accordingly as it happens. 
Fair enough. Uh, let's move on. Christian, you said you were stuck on your couch all weekend watching wall-to-wall footy. I want to know what, what sort of took your eye from the weekend. I mean, we've got a few um, ideas of what shorter quarters are bringing about in, in 2020 AFL, um, the 2020 AFL season. But it does sort of seem like from my from where I sit in the, in the cheap seats, that, that it is harder to score in the second half than it is in the first half. We cheap seats? Been... You're, you're MCC, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Not this year, I haven't been. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> Scoring in the in the second half seems to be so hard for some teams compared to the first half. Uh, I mean, do the stats sort of back this up at all? And quarter by quarter, like, is it is it really that much harder to score as the game goes on? Yeah, it's it, it, looking like it isn't across the first three rounds. So, I mean, scores by quarter, just for you know per team per game, it's eighteen and a half in first quarters, sixteen in the second, seventeen in the third, thirteen in the last. So, eighteen and a half down to thirteen, bit of a drop. But if you just look at the winning team scores per uh, quarter, so for winning teams, they scored 24 points in the first quarter, 22nd, 22 in the third. So again, the third quarter is sort of high-ish, but it's the last quarter really, 13 points per game for winning teams in final quarters. Uh, I think Carlton won with a behind. Uh, they kept <laughs> one behind in the last quarter. Uh, I think Melbourne might have won the previous week against Carlton by kicking one behind, um, or maybe just a little bit more in the last quarter. So it is, it's... It's probably getting easier to hold on to leads um, in final quarters. And, yeah, just looking at sort of, um, the, you know, a reason why that might be. To me, the, the biggest drop in numbers in the final quarter is your ability to score once inside 50. So the ball goes inside 50 and how often do you score from that? So first quarters, again, teams are at 43%, uh, 42.5% in the second quarter, 43% again in the third, down to 37.5% or 38% uh, in the final quarter. So... Again, 4 or 5% drop-off consistently across final quarter. So teams are obviously just getting their defences back. We sort of flagged it last week. Is it the fitter players just being able to run 80, 90 metres back behind the ball quicker? Um, you know, the contest is probably disappearing from the midfield in the last quarter and teams are just sort of waiting back and sort of just stacking the defence, especially if they've got the lead. So, um, yeah, it's just, again, we sort of flagged a little bit last week. It's just something to watch. Our game's going to be harder to come back in once you're behind in the final quarter. So... Again, making starter games so much more exciting because you see the teams that come out of the blocks, Melbourne against Carlton, Carlton against Geelong the week later. Uh, I think Adelaide, we sort of said, snuck over the line against Sydney. They scored half their score in the first quarter in round one. So, um, yeah, starter games are going to be so much more important, it looks like, this season. Can I just Is play this a my... bad look? Oh, can I just play my traditional curmudgeon role and go, yeah, starter <laughs> games are great to watch and the end of games are absolutely diabolical to watch. Well, well, this is what—that's what I was going to say. It wasn't too bad, so. But again, <laughs> that you can always pick out one good game and one, you know, not so good game per round. But yeah, it's it's a wait and see, I think. But taking that approach, are we sort is it is it a bad look for football if if this is what we we're, we're sort of going? To? I know we're going to revert to the longer quarters and and maybe things will go back to how they they used to be. But to have these games where you know it's it's almost a race to half time and then it's you know preserve that lead. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the second half. Is that a bad look for football? But again, we haven't seen... I mean, there was, working on so many games of football the last few years, I've sat during games and just thought, I, I wish they had the mercy rule. By 30-minute mark of the third, tw- third term, where one team can just say, yeah, we've had enough. You can take this much percentage points and, you know, we, we forfeit the rest of the game or something. At least the, the margins aren't 40, 50 points and the game's dead. Again, with Geelong, Carlton, yes... The winning teams are scoring more in the first quarter, but games are still, you're still watching a game. And if you turn on the game in the last quarter and the margins 15, 20 points, 
you're not going to turn it off thinking, oh, geez, there's, there's just no way to come back. So again, only three rounds in. Hopefully, over the next two rounds, we have we have some great last quarter comebacks, and it's all just you know a, a null point. But at the moment, as I said, it's just if you look at it, it's the the winning teams are getting out of the blocks quicker. But again, watching the the twenty odd games that we've had so far, I don't think we've had any too many final quarters where you just thought, oh, just end it now because nothing's going to happen from. From this point the on. showdown. <laughs> Anytime Adelaide plays. <laughs> I, I guess I guess the, the fascinating thing is going to be when we do go back to normal length quarters, whether this is a trend that translates into that longer format as well. Because mm. I, I suspect it, it probably is. You know, I, I, I am I've come full circle on this. I am a real football traditionalist, but I think the coaches' manipulations of game styles and structures now have become so adept that it's gone beyond things like little tweaks of the rules. It's gone beyond things like reducing interchange rotations. It, it, you know, we've seen those tweaks, 666. They don't have enough impact. The only way we're going to see the game sort of change to, I think, closer to a product the bulk of the footy world wants to see is dramatic changes. And the two obvious ones are uh, introduction of zones and the, or the removal of two players from the ground or both. And they are changes that I think the same football public that wants to see more attractive football would also be resistant to that. So it's just not going to happen. So I've sort of resigned myself as an old man who sort of saw that, what I say, the peak aesthetic period of footy. I've resigned myself to, you know, look, I still love footy. I think we see some great games, but I don't think we're going to see as many of them as we used to when I was a boy. Well, I mean... Matt, you've been saying this for a long time about coaches being able to... You know, they'll always, always find win. ways to adapt they'll and adjust, win. yeah. Um, but I think you're right, Rowan. Unless there's a really dramatic change like, like zones where only six players can be in the back 50 at any time, uh, it's going to continue to do that. And I mean, one of the big buzzwords last year was, that when talking offensively, was um, repeat entries and getting repeat entries because eventually you wear the defence down. But clearly over the off-season, you can sort of tell that a bunch of coaches have gone away and said, how can we best defend repeat entries? And Christian, you sort of said it there. When when you're scoring from only 37% of your entries compared to 43% in the first quarter, um, players, teams are obviously backing their system enough to, to say we can shut it down in the, in the, in the back, back half of the game. And if we've got a 15, 20 or a 42-point lead as, as the Ds and the Blues had um, and, and just held on, um, they, they'll sort of back themselves to do that. And, yeah, it might not be the, the most attractive footy, uh, but for those games uh, as two case studies, at least they were close in the end and it was somewhat entertaining. But yeah, it's, um, it's sort of fascinating to see how the coaches have again found a way to, to manipulate any rule changes and, and any ways of, of the AFL saying we want to open up the game because the coaches are going to have the final say. And if, if they're allowed to drop players back or, or implement defensive actions, they're going to do it. Interesting. My other idea that I've always had to, you know, to change it, without, rather than touching the on-field product as such, is more, you know, bonus points on the ladder, or, you know, you score the highest score of the round, and you get something, you get an extra two points. And again, traditionalists won't like, you know, a ladder with, you know, a team with ten wins is all of a sudden going to get forty-eight points because they're good at scoring and things like that. But I feel it's got to be something more to do with. Again, I'm probably with you, Rowan, and you know watch footy for too long for it to go down to 16 a side or anything like that. But I would be happy for teams, you know, to, to get an extra a match point for if they score over 100 or if you're a high scoring team for the round, if we're starting to talk about oh, what happens when it's, you know, what wet season and things like that. I, I put that one up. I wrote a column about that, I reckon, 10 years ago. And I got smashed. I got physically 
assaulted to a level I've never been by anything I've ever written before. But I, I'd argue that even more strongly. I reckon you'd agree, Christian, that we talk about the loss of contested marking. We talk about the loss of high marking, goal kicking, scoring. But the biggest costliest loss to the game, in my view, is the loss of transition football, end-to-end um, -end stuff. That Because that sort of is the foundation of all that other stuff we see, of the game being more open, forwards having more space, able to score more. It's all about coast-to-coast -coast footy, and we see far less of that, and that has been the, big, the biggest single costliest loss to the game, in my view. We could um, we could talk about this for a bit longer, but we'll move on a little bit. Yeah. Christian, yeah, um, sorry, <laughs> no, that's all right. Just touching on game game time, um, I, I've noticed that it seems like star players are staying out on the field longer than they normally would in terms of percentages uh, percentage of game time. Um, can you kind of give us an insight as to like some of the bigger players, some of the bigger names we might know, and if they're spending more time on the ground because there are shorter quarters, or if clubs are sort of saying, no, no, we're going to play you the same percentage just in case we need to play games in midweek going forward? Yeah, like um, like most things, there's, there's a mixed bag of it. There is some players that have actually gone down um, in time, percentage of time on ground for some reason. I mean, we are seeing about 12 or 13 fewer interchange moves per game. So it's not a, you know, a full 21 or 42 where it's like one per person or anything like that. So, um, yeah, there's still, there's still the highly rotated players and the guys are spending, you know, the usual 75, 80% of quarters on games. But yeah, a few few numbers, a few guys that have numbers that stand out for me is uh, guys like uh, Lockie Neal this year. So he went from 80% in his final year at Frio, 88% in his first year at Brisbane, up to 91% this year. Um, even guy like Trent Dumont for North Melbourne, um, it's probably always sort of been in and out of the team. He's playing 93% game time off a wing, sort of playing, you know, that's that's like key defender, you know, numbers in previous years. Uh, Nat Fife from 82% two years ago, 86% last year to 93% this year. So um, that's him also just going up forward instead of having to go to the bench. And again, this is just something that was always flagged. If we if we brought down rotations and, you know, capped the interchange numbers further, star players would play more. But as I said, I, I started to run through it. And yes, there's a few players that are playing more, but you still got, you know, some of the Dangerfields, Ablets, they're still at the same. Um, I think guys like Jack Siebel who have always been highly rotated on and off the ground are still doing that even with the shorter games. Um, so yeah, we're seeing a few more stars staying out on the field, but you know, nothing too dramatic where you just got, oh well, Dangerfield and Dusty are now playing 100% of game time because it's shortened game. So we haven't seen anything quite as dramatic as that. So for someone like uh, Fife, he's, he might be playing the same amount of minutes as he was last year, but that because of the shortened quarters, he's He's just out there more, you know, more of time. So he's out there ninety three percent of time, as opposed to what was it, eighty six last year? It's an eighty two the year before, yeah. Yeah. So we might be playing the same amount of minutes. So he's he still feels as spent mm. as he would normally, but it's a benefit for Frio because there's only seven percent of time he's not out there. Well, we talked so, about um, um, training groups together and having the the top line defenders with you know lower range or first year players or in, to sort of spread the risk. If teams end up having to play two games three games in eight days and you've had a bloke playing 96% game time because they haven't managed him percentage wise. Is that going to, I don't know if you're treating it as normal, will these players be overworked when it, when it comes to this? I mean, it's obviously a risk to play them as a high percentage and play them as if they were playing full 20 minute quarters. But if things do go pear shaped and these blokes are run off their feet, like are they going to be able to run out three games in eight days? It's, it's, it's because of the, the AFL sort of doing their 
four-week rolling fixture in the way like that. I think that's why we didn't have Essendon Melbourne this week because we could still have a midweek game, but we'll, we'll know about it three or four weeks in advance. So it, things could change. Um, but I think that's the that's probably part of the AFL and the uh, team's negotiations. They need to see the fixture four weeks in advance because they, they manage their, their all their plays within blocks of weeks and kilometres per week and things like that. So, again, I think that would have been the biggest stumbling block to just putting Melbourne Essendon on during this week. It's like, well, no, no, no. In the next fixture, you can put us on a Wednesday night, but we need three weeks' notice so we can manage the games around that. It's certainly closer to that sort of um, English soccer model, isn't it? Where, you know, even your star players will be rested. I wonder, I just wonder if any clubs have sort of had a look at that man management thing in English and European soccer, because it's just par for the course there, isn't it? You know, like a star player won't play in one game and none of the supporters sort of bat an eyelid, whereas here, you know, if Dangerfield got rested or whatever, everyone goes, oh my God, you know, it's just a different sort of mindset, I suppose, but... Perhaps yeah. one we're going to have to adapt more. I think we have to wait to to see what happens. If 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 it gets to the point where where um you know a team has to play three times in eight days for that example, th- there's no way that you know if it is free, Fife's not going to be playing ninety three percent in all three of those games. You wouldn't think, um, and they're just going to adjust. But for now, I don't see that as, as for now they're playing once a week and and they can get away with it as normal. Um, two weeks in a row, Christian. The the Tigers have failed to kick more than five goals. Uh, is there anything that champion data has noticed about how you go about doing this and, and beating Richmond or drawing with Richmond in the case of, of the Pies a couple of weeks back? Again, they've, they've only lost one in a row when we're sort of talking about <laughs> Richmond. But yeah, in a row. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, both, we, we spoke about it last year, what Richmond loves to do is that surge handball where they just go, you know, length of the ground, handballing more than everyone else. They've done that both weeks against Collingwood and Hawthorne. But again, it's it's what we went back to at the start of this segment. It's the teams are just waiting back for them. Hawthorne and Collingwood did it to them both times. So in the last two weeks that Richmond haven't won, they've been the worst team at scoring per inside 50. So the same number we spoke about again at the start of the segment. They're down at about um, just in the mid-30% across the whole game for scoring once inside 50. Uh, sorry, low 40%. Um, and... But they are still, you know, number one for handball metres gain. They're winning a lot of intercept possessions in their forward half. So they're winning time in forward half by seven and a half minutes per game, which is one of the best in the last two weeks. But Hawthorne and Collingwood are just absorbing and just waiting. And then when they got the ball, being very, very patient, uh, spreading Richmond and sort of, yeah, making sure every one of your disposal counts. Which, again, I'm, I'm sure most teams try to do that every single week. But you, you just got to do that so quick, uh, so carefully against Richmond because, as we said, they can... Once the ball drops to ground and it's in a contest, if they win it, they're able to put you out of position so quickly because of that use of hand and the free-flowing forwards. But Richmond and Colling- uh, sorry, Richmond, uh, Collingwood and Hawthorne have been waiting for that. If they have turned it over, they've had numbers behind the ball to make it impossible for Richmond to score. Um, and again, just I go back to round one and the way that uh, Richmond and Carlton played, Richmond got so many goals out the back. They just had very open forward line. Carlton thought, oh, we're in the game here because we're, we're shutting the ball. We're keeping it in our forward half. Richmond were doing what? Teams are now doing Richmond, they'll send a Carlton. Well, you can have the ball in your forward half because as soon as we get it past centre, we've got Rioli, Rewalt, Lynch out the back that are just, you know, going to kick easy goals. So, uh, something to watch, yeah. Richmond, sort of, you almost want to let them dominate territory and beat them on the counter-attack. But, yeah, how long teams can keep that up against Richmond, we'll have to see. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a fascinating sort of clash of game styles, isn't it? it I was just thinking then, it doesn't necessarily make for... Um, very entertaining footy, does it? The, the Richmond Hawthorne game wasn't bad to watch. The Richmond Collingwood game was dire, though, wasn't it? Yeah, no. I think I think Hawthorne 
yeah, they, they still made it exciting to watch. They exactly they didn't try to be too dour with it and be totally defensive. I think again, once they got two or three goals up, they had a little bit of confidence. All right, let's get you know scoreboard pressure as they say. Let's get the score on the scoreboard. And um, but as I said, yeah, Richmond both games just their forward just has not been able to find any easy ball at all. Um, that game so- though against uh, against the the Hawks, that's the most without using the, the un-Richmond-like word that, that Damien Hardwick used, but that was the most un-Richmond-like I've seen them since probably 2017. It's just, yeah. They just look nothing like what we're used to seeing. And not even there weren't even really any patches throughout that game that you thought, okay, well, that's what they do well. It was just a really weird game. It's it kind of like that game against St Kilda that beat them by about 10 goals at, at Marvel Stadium a couple of years ago, where it was just a really bizarre game. And... I think that was more of an anomaly. This, I think this sort of does highlight their reliance on, on Dustin Martin and the fact that the stats that you just pointed out before where, where teams are sort of being able to flood back and, and defend them. But, yeah, it just it, it wasn't what we, we've come to expect from them at all. Yeah. Um, something else we haven't come to expect is three rounds in, we've got someone leading the Colin with only eight goals. Christian, you <laughs> mentioned this in our little pre-pod meeting. Um, but... It, it, Common medal's in trouble this year. It's going to be someone winning it with about 35 goals, I would say. Correct. It's a, it's a wingman with eight goals too. So uh, Harry Perryman at yeah, GWS with eight goals, leading the common ahead of Charlie Cameron at the moment. Um, players on equal third, Tom Papley, Isaac Keeney, Liam Ryan and Chad Wingard. So again, only three rounds in, but not a key forward amongst those names. All the key forwards are stuck on five, a big cluster of them. Jeremy Cameron, Ben Brown, Tabernard Westoff, the two Kings and a few other names. So I've looked at previous years and, you know, we're all usually, you know, season ended at round 17. Other years, the Coleman medals would be about 48, 55, 53 goals thereabouts. It's still, you know, an average of close to two or three per game. No one's close to doing that yet. The shorter the shorter games and, you know, lower scores, four, four goals are going to be the new eight goals. So, you know, you're not going to see big bags kick. But, yeah, are we going to see at, uh, by the end of the home and away season, 10 people tied on the Coleman with 28 goals apiece? And how, how does that look? <laughs> Well, you'd need a you'd need a big dais at the grand final to get all the joint Coleman medal winners in to present yeah, well, the medal. Who, who's the car sponsor now? Are they still driving around? Might be good for the car sponsor to get extra. <laughs> get a minute, get a mini bus. Yeah, extra ten minutes in the parade. But it, it is. It's uh, just again, just something to watch with you know banging on about lower scoring. But uh, I think the Brownlow after round seventeen, usually the winner's going to be up there. Um, I think you can pick an all Australian team after seventeen rounds. But the Coleman after seventeen rounds, as sort of said to you, if you've got five blokes winning it and not a key forward on thirty, do you still? I mean, it always goes down in the history books as being a Coleman medal, but it just has that unusual feel about it. Ah, spot on. I mean, you just cross your fingers, don't you, that we don't have the same view about whoever ends up winning the premiership, which would be an absolute disaster. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, the first perhaps tangible example, isn't it, of how different what the record books are going to portray this season. Yeah. Number but least, the thing is... Number least, we've still got the possibility of a December grand final. The thing is, if Jack Rewalt uh, wins, the, wins the Coleman and he kicks 40 goals for the season, I don't think people are going to care too much. But, you know, if Isaac Heaney wins it and he's kicked 40, then you think, oh, how does Isaac Heaney win the, win the Coleman medal? So... Shout out to, uh, to Neil Seawang, who is usually on the podcast with us, because uh, we were discussing this probably a month ago. That, and I'm a big believer that basically the, the fewer minutes that 
players are on the ground, there's less opportunity to kick goals, and that's going to be that's going to detract from the key forwards. So the the more games and more game time you have, the more advantage the key forwards have to kick um, to kick to to amass a higher tally of goals. So when you reduce that, and not only we're we reducing the amount of games, but we're reducing the the length of games. Um, I believe that there's well, it's not. I believe. I think it clearly shows that there is a higher chance that you you could get um, a non-key forward winning the Coleman Medal. Now, it probably won't work out that way. I think over seven. I think 17 rounds are still long enough that you will get a key forward winning out. But you have got more of a chance of a of an upset. Let's call it an upset Coleman winner. I'm, I'm, I think I'm okay with an upset. I'm just not okay with. Yeah, and at the moment we only we do have a clear leader. I'm, I'm just uncomfortable with five or six people being tied. You know, hopefully that that's not the case, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, it is a bizarre year. We'll uh, we'll, we'll follow this one, I think, uh, throughout the year and, and see see where we go. Um, let's whip through these next couple of segments because we're running short on time. Uh, the Gold Coast Suns were pretty good. Uh, I know they played uh, an opposition that is in a bit of trouble. Uh, Rowan, you're going to write about uh, the Crows this this week for ESPN.com.au, but there's some signs from the Suns that. You know, last year, the year before, you might not have said, culturally, they seem to be making a lot of steps. The young kids look like they want to be there. Um, the, the kids are showing a lot of promise. Um, you know, Ben King was, was really good. Matty Rowell, obviously, 10 coaches votes um, for the second week running. Christian, you know, what have you noticed from these two young kids at, at the Suns? Oh, correct. They're, I mean, they're doing exactly what, you know, you, you want them to do in their 50th or 100th game already. So Matt Rowell's already one of the best tacklers in the competition. I think we've spoken about player ratings on this before. Uh, I think he's third on total player ratings for the season. Um, and then you look at Ben King as a forward. Um, being put into that forward line, I mean, you know, they've got Sam Day next to him, but he hasn't been put into the forward line as, uh, as you know, um, a secondary key forward to someone. He's been given that forward line himself. He's been targeted, um, I think, the most in the competition to retain possession of the ball 40% of the time, which is the number one key to key inside 50 target in the competition. So, um, you know, obviously shouldering the load up forward and just, yeah, in, is it game number six or seven, he's already showing, as I said, being able to uh, control the forward line and sort of be that number one target. Matty Rao, you know, one of the contest possession beasts, one of the big pickups I think we we're going to talk about as well, Q Greenwood. Uh, I think we wanted to talk about him and his little Adelaide stouch, but he's been an absolute, you know, great pickup for their midfield, the hard body. Um, right in the middle, it just helps uh, Matty Rowell out. But yeah, two weeks in a row now, Gold Coast have looked good across all three lines. Just on, just on Matt Rowell, and, and just consider this for a second. He's played three games, and he is the tenth, equal tenth favourite to win the Brownlow Medal this year. There's only nine players that have got just shorter odds to win the Brownlow Medal than him this year. He's played three games. Some bookies have already paid out. And two of them. Two of them. He's. Two of them. He's. Two of them he's probably already been best on ground in. He's probably got six votes already. That is extraordinary. <laughs> my, look, my, my one, again, playing the typically curmudgeon role, my one reservation on all this is the starts that they've had each of the last two seasons. What was it? Three wins from five one year, and I think the first three or three out of four the other year. Three and one, yeah. Um, you know, I just... I, Look, I'm I'm loving watching them. They're great. I just want to see. I want to see how the first yeah. six six weeks pan out. I'm, I'm with you. So after every draft, everyone says, "Oh, Gold Coast have finally done it. They've had the draft. It's going to fix their team." And I've thought every year, I'm sort of saying, "Well, you can't say that until two or three years' time. You know, you got to wait and see." This draft looks very, very good. I will say that. But 
uh, sort of with you, but you got to think last year they were just falling over the line in some of those games. So out of those three or four wins they had, they were by about two or three points. That's what I liked about uh, West Coast was the second half domination. Uh, and then this one against Adelaide, they just didn't let up. It wasn't, it wasn't messy footy. It wasn't just getting over the line. It was, as I said, controlling clearances, controlling contested possession and having a very potent forward line. Um, that, that's, the, that's the difference from last year for me. So. They, um, they've got a bloke called Isaac Rankin still to, to sort of slot his way into yeah. that lineup as well. So there's obviously still some, uh, some good stuff to come from the Suns. And, and yeah, maybe we will, we're, yeah, pardon me. Maybe we will reassess after about six or seven rounds um, and see where they're at because it's one to keep an eye on for sure. But what about the Crows on the, on the flip side? Um, I mean, geez, second lowest score in their, in their team's history. Um, and they only really avoided getting their lowest score. I know shortened quarters and everything. But they really only avoided scoring their lowest score because of a late 50-metre penalty uh, that took, I think it was Taylor Walker to the line and he kicked goal. <laughs> They're the worst team in the comp. Like, I know we sort of bring it up every couple of weeks and, and debate which team's you know, up the top and down the bottom. But I haven't seen a side like, like the Crows sort of put in the effort they put in second to the ball uh, like they were on, on uh, Sunday afternoon against the Suns for a long time. I have, have to be the worst side in the comp. I mean, just totally abject performance that was, as was the showdown. I guess the thing that I... And I did, found myself doing this last year too. I just keep thinking back to, you know, five minutes before the bounce of the ball, grand final day 2017. They were the best side in the competition. I mean, with all due respect to Richmond, Adelaide were the best-performed side of 2017. They went into that game, you know, clear favourites, played a great, uh, a great level of footy, um, you know, so much defensive pressure, great transition end-to-end, and they've lost it. And the, the bottom has fallen out of the whole operation, and not just on the field. It's, it's been even, um, or not just matched, exceeded by what's happened off the field. It's just the absolute implosion of an entire club. And, you know, I look back to, say, Fremantle finished on top of the ladder in 2015. Um, couldn't make a grand final and then the bottom fell out of it for them. But at least as a club, they still remain solid. This is a, this is a club that is fracturing as a footy team and is fracturing as a club. And, uh, boy, I, I'm not sure that they really know how to arrest this slide because the administration, you could argue the administration is in even worse form than the team given some of the faux pas that have been going on there. I mean, Mark Rusciuto's efforts in the last couple of weeks have just been absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, like someone's got to rein him in. It's just so destructive what he's been doing. The um, failure for so long to concede how damaging that controversial pre-season camp was. You know, they just, they appear to be a club in denial. And perhaps that denial has extended to what's gone on on the field as well. So they are in a, you know, they, look, they're a strong club. They're well resourced. There's plenty of people willing to help. They'll get out of it. But there's absolutely no doubt this is that club's lowest ebb in thirty odd years. Is it? Is it the lowest? Well, I think I you nailed think it got, because they've still got a way to go. I mean, they've got wood to cut on the field and off the field. So to me, this isn't the bottom. This is um, this is the continuingly rapid decline of, of the Adelaide Crows, and, and and they've still yet to sort of hit rock bottom in, in, in my eyes. Well, I mean that's the scary part if they've still got further to fall because if goal if, if most people think Gold Coast is the worst performing side in the comp and they lose by nine goals and you still think that they can there's a there's further to fall then that's really worrying they're in a dire spot and as Rowan said. The most concerning thing from the Crows' perspective is not what they're doing on the field. 
They're playing like rub. They're playing like crap on the field. Let's be honest. But it's all the stuff going on in the background. And you, you think of, of you, you can you can name 10, 10 different things that have gone wrong since that twenty seventeen grand final that haven't got anything to do with the on field performance. And as you say, all the Mark Rashudo stuff, uh, Andrew McLeod coming out, um, the the camp, all this stuff, and all the players just wanting to leave. I mean, how often do you have a team that is goes into a game as the grand final, uh, goes into the grand final as the favourite? And within 12 months, half the players want to leave. They want out of there. It's just not... It's a toxic environment. And it's just snowballing and it's getting worse and worse. So for their sake, you hope it doesn't get any... It doesn't get worse, but you're right. It it may may well. I mean, there there are more players that might have to be cut from that list. For sure. Um, We can talk about Adelaide for a while. Uh, We might in in coming weeks if if this form sort of continues. But let's move on. Justified hype or hyperbole was a segment we introduced last week. I thought it did okay. Um, uh, so I'm going to whip around with a few more questions uh, under this banner, under this, this new segment. But let's try and keep them quick because we are running out of time. Um, Jake, I'll start with you. Uh, the AFL Grand Final could be played interstate this year. Is that justified hype or hyperbole? No, it's not happening. Just leave, it in, leave it at the MCG. Move on. Ron? Uh, justified. Uh, yeah, I, I'm... I don't have an issue with it, particularly if the crowds are going to be kept to a minimum. Uh, we want optimum playing conditions, you know, if they happen to be in Darwin or whatever. AFL Grand Final in Darwin, I think it'll be different. It would be very different. Different for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Christian? I think it has to be justified. Um, look at the year we're having. It's yeah. Anything can happen, anything will happen. So uh, um, I think everyone's just got to... All the MCG traditionalists and maybe MCC members like yourself, Matt, just <laughs> get over it. It'll be one year where it's not at the MCG, and it'll be back and it'll be back and played there for the next fifty years. But this year could be something different. I'll stick with you uh, with the next question. The Suns deserve a Friday night match in the next round of fixturing. Definitely, I've been I've been banging on about it even you know when they were struggling. AFL want them to be exposed and want them to get them on TV. I know you you. You had danger of previous years of putting them on and seeing 100 points, but I don't understand how they haven't had at least one. Mm, um, but yeah, now's the time to give them one in the next three or four weeks, you would hope so. Does anyone object? Uh, whatever they turned on couldn't be worse than what the uh, Bulldogs and Giants turned on last Friday. Fair point. Uh, Jake, I'll throw this one to you because you have some opinions about it, but the Tigers are toothless without Dusty. Uh, no, that's fact. They they certainly are. Um, did you watch the game like, on Thursday night? Yeah, I did, yes. Well, th- oh, there you go. I mean, I think it's pretty evident that they are. The, he's Look, he's the best player in the comp. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You know, th- there's a couple alongside him. But what he does, what, what he can do through the midfield in the forward line, it's incredible. Now, I know they've got a, a half-decent record without him. But when you look at what they've been able to do with without him, they don't have that insurance policy of him being able to rescue rescue them and bring them back from the brink. They are not the same side without Dustin Martin. I'm not going to say they're not they're no longer an A-grade side, but they certainly are that A-plus premiership side without Dustin Martin. If Dustin, and let me throw this question back at you, if, if Dustin Martin wasn't playing for the rest of the year, how confident would you be of Richmond winning a grand final? Uh, oh, still pretty confident. They're a well-drilled side. Christian, do you have anything on Dusty that might sort of sway Jake's opinion at all? Oh, well, he's uh, missed four games in his career, and that's the first one they've lost. So, um, yeah, I, I think again, I think Hawthorne dismantled them in another way. I don't, I don't know how much Dusty could have helped. I, I probably agree with you. They, they definitely need him. He makes them better. But, but yeah, as I said, 
you sort of said they have a half good record without him. It's it's seventy five percent record without him. So. Uh, <laughs> Next question, Rowan. West Coast's negative attitude towards the hub model has affected their footy. Uh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I think um, with those things, it's probably all right to think negative thoughts, but it's airing them that I think just uh, creates, it just spreads the perception. You know, you've got to, you've got to make sure that the outwardly the things appear positive. And mm. um Gee, you know, this time of year, I would have thought, you know, spending time on the Gold Coast isn't too bad, is it? Although, you know, probably can't go to Movie World or Disney uh, World or whatever, whatever they have up there. Those things are off the agenda. But the weather's still pretty warm. So, come on, boys. Before the torrential rain, it was 22 and sunny and, and lovely up there, I thought, on, on Sunday. Um, so, yeah, it could be worse for sure. Uh, Jake, you're normally a pretty pessimistic Carlton fan at the best of times. Uh, this question is for you. Has Carlton turned the corner with that breakthrough win at GMHBA Stadium? Well, I don't really know what turn the corner means, but uh, <laughs> it was obviously a great... The footy turn. Well, it's a great step. I think, um, you know, without banging on Alistair Clarkson's comments that Geelong's not that good, however you want to interpret that. Um, no, it was a good. It was a really good win. I, I don't think you can take anything away from that. Probably not a great finish to the game, but still got the four points. Um, I'd want to see it a little bit more consistently. I think that's been the problem and, and want to see a, probably, probably want to see a, a four-week block uh, where the Blues can get off to reasonable starts. Because we spoke about it last week. If you tuned into second halves of Carlton games, you'd think these guys are decent. But it's, that, that's those, um, it's those starts which have just been killers. I think there has been a bit of hype early about that because everyone was banging on about how it was their first win down in Geelong since 1996. And I think they've played there four times since 1996. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> they get a bit happy with the facts sometimes, uh, some parts of the media, and, and that was one for sure. Um, before we go, uh, Jake, you were at the game on Thursday night, and you were talking to me earlier in the, uh, in the podcast meeting about something you noticed uh, driving home from the MCG. And I, I just wonder if you'd like to share anything with us uh, on the podcast before we, before we head off. We're not going to name and shame, but uh, there was something I noticed on the way home from the MCG on Thursday night, which I was a little bit disappointed to see. Uh, for the first time, I actually scored a park under the MCG, given that there was nobody there. So that was that was nice. Uh, but, after, but leaving the game, I, I walked out with a lot of the Hawthorne players who all got in their cars and we all drove out the tunnel together out onto Hoddle Street. And I tell you, I was really disappointed. We talk about football players and, and athletes as role models. I was really, really disappointed to drive down Hoddle Street. And again, not going to name and shame, but there were a dozen Hawthorne players staring at their phones while driving 80 kilometres an hour down, down Punt Road and just not, not even at the lights doing it. Not that you should be doing that either, but it was really dangerous. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe, I know people do it. I see it all, all the time. And a football player is no different to anyone in the general public, but it's just really not a good look, especially when we're talking about road safety and all this stuff. If someone looks and sees, you know, such and such doing it, they think, well, I can do it too. So I was really disappointed. I'm not going to pretend that that it doesn't happen. I mean, I'm, I understand that it does happen, but I think the players need to be educated more around this because it's certainly not a good look. It's not, and, it, and it wasn't just one or two. It was about 10 that I saw. Gee, that's big. You sure you don't want to name and shame? You want me to name and shame, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> no, no, I, I won't name and shame. Yeah, um, that's, that's a, a warning shot across like the bow. 
be better Hawthorne players driving home from the G. I mean, just check your phones in your car before you drive off. Is that's not that hard, is it? Well, I understand that they they you know have to give the, their phones to the club a lot of the time. They they won't get to look at their phone for six hours. But I mean, God, who what what do you really need to do? What are you doing at eleven o'clock at night on a on a Thursday night on your phone when you're driving home twenty minutes, thirty minutes? What are you doing? Checking Either send a text or or check your check your Twitter about how many goals you kicked and and then do it when you get home or do it at the G before you leave. Don't do it while you're driving, because you'll have an accident and then there'll be there'll be a big story about that and then you're going to just get dragged through the mud. It's not worth it. Very good, Jake. Uh, Rowan, I'll give the final word to you. Uh, something that caught your eye from the weekend, and uh, we'll give you a plug on the on the Footyology podcast. I heard this and it was very good. Um, but you have a problem with the broadcasters. Well, I'm just sick of them trying to talk up games that we can all see and no good. And uh, <laughs> it occurred to me when we uh, halftime of the Friday night game, five goals have been kicked in the game. It was shocking to watch. And they go back to the Fox footy Friday night panel. And the very first thing Eddie Maguire says is, wow, that was amazing. And I just burst he, out He laughing. said that every week. <laughs> I know, well, it's just ridiculous. But my, my, the particular bee in my bonnet is the, the intros to games that are particularly... Uh, attractive and they'll have the guy with the sort of uh, man from snowy river narration voice you know and some suitably slow-mo footage in the background and he'll he'll say something like this you know tonight it's all on the line a game between one club no one cares about and another 16th on the ladder after being smashed three weeks in a row this is judgment day welcome to Fremantle and Port Adelaide Sunday night at Metricon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, the TV media especially sometimes tends to treat the, uh, the, what, the, the, um, the viewers as mugs because I think we can plainly see what is a good and what, is a good and what isn't a good game. Uh, and, and you know what? That's fine. If there's not a good game and it's still on, hey, we're going to watch it or not. But sometimes things beyond their control, they do try a little bit hard to try and uh, rope everyone in. Just well, adding, like a... just adding to that, um, the you know there are a couple of commentators again, no, not naming and shaming, but you know a team will be ten goals down and they'll kick one and it's they're back in it. It's game on. It's you know it's it's a tight contest. No, it's not. It's still <laughs> nine goals down. Not naming anyone whose initials are BT and name is Brian Taylor. <laughs> Oh, very good. All right, uh, let's wrap things up, guys. Uh, thanks again for, for, for joining us on the podcast this week. Uh, don't forget to log into the Footy Tips app and, and lodge your tips uh, before the round begins on Thursday evening. Uh, and we will speak to you all in the next one. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast.